Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi everyone, it's Will here from We Are West Ham. Thanks for tuning in to this bonus episode, feature-length interview with the Hammers' legendary striker, Tony Cotty. But I just wanted to let you know, this week's podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Your Eleven, and you could win yourself a totally free, bespoke A3 print of your all-time favourite West Ham Eleven by entering our competition. The guys over at Your Eleven have released their opening series of prints and We Are West Ham are looking forward to receiving our Cult Eleven piece, including players like Ludo McClosco, Paolo Di Canio, Mark Noble and of course my all-time favourite, Super Thomas Repka. But you can win a print of your own, designed by you to include all your favourite Hammers players and the classic kits in which they are most well known. To enter, simply head over to We Are underscore West Ham on Twitter Follow our account and the guys at Your Eleven. Retweet the We Are West Ham competition tweet and tag one of your football-loving friends in the comments. The winner will be decided on Sunday and we'll DM the winner with details so you can get picking your players. Other Team 11s are also available to order. Classic options of legendary Premier League sides as well as bespoke options to create your very own dream team. Head on over to at your underscore 11 on Twitter or Instagram to see what's on offer. Good luck. Hello and welcome back to We Are West Ham. My name is Will Pugh and I'm joined by the ever-present James Jones. No Charlie Hawkins this week. Unfortunately, he doesn't do days, only does evenings. But we are delighted to bring you another bonus podcast episode this week. We're trying to do a little bit more to keep everyone entertained and to keep everyone's spirits high during lockdown. We hope everyone's keeping safe. But this week, we are delighted to be joined yet again by another iconic striker for West Ham, another former England international. We had Dean Ashton on, of course, last week. Dean giving us some fantastic insights and one of our greatest strikers of the modern era. But this week, we are thrilled to have Tony Cotty, one of our greatest strikers of all time. James, 146 goals for Tony and a life that really we'd all love to have led. 
you know, scoring goals for your boyhood club, debut against Spurs, he scores the winner at 17 years old and goes on to have two spells with the club and just continually banging in goals for the club you loved as a kid. Not a bad life by any stretch of the imagination. And what a guest again for the We Are West Ham podcast. Oh yeah, we're, we're, we're really pulling them out of the bag, aren't we, at the moment, Will? Uh, it's, it's great to have Tony on this week. Uh, as you said, he's lived the dream of, of all West Ham fans. Uh, he's probably lived the dream of, of you and I a little bit more, given that now he works in, in the media and, and uh, broadcasting. So um, he continues to, to live our dream. But um, yeah, it's, it's, gonna be, it's a pleasure to, to get him on. Everyone knows how much of a great goal scorer he was. Um, great career. Uh, had that rogue season over in Malaysia uh, in between uh, us and when, when he went to Leicester. But um, just scored so many goals. One of the heroes of the 85-86 uh, the, the season as well. And um, as you said, his debut against Spurs. I mean, what a way to, to introduce yourself to, to, to your boy or club. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Tony, one of our greatest all-time strikers coming up shortly. We're going to ask him about the state of the club now. David Moyes. Declan Rice, Sebastian Haller, who Dean Ashton had some interesting comments about last week. If you haven't listened already, that full-length Dean Ashton episode is still available on iTunes, Spotify, Deezer, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. So be sure to go back and listen to that one if you haven't already. We'll also ask Tony about his time, the 85-86 season that James mentioned there. His brain hemorrhage that he, of course, had in the summer of last year for a man in his 50s. Lives a healthy lifestyle and, and what sort of perspective that gave him on his life and of course we'll have some questions from you the listeners who have come in on twitter and over our email we are west ham pod at gmail.com so stay tuned for tony cotty coming up shortly and don't forget to get in touch with us here at we are west ham you can get us at we are underscore west ham on twitter you can find us on instagram now it's we are west ham pod on instagram we've also got a tiktok thanks to social media sensation ollie who we've brought on board in the last couple of weeks. And of course, as ever, you can get us on the email address at wearewesthampod at gmail.com. So stay with us. West Ham's, one of West Ham's greatest strikers of all time. Coming up, Tony Cotty on the We Are West Ham podcast. So, as promised, welcome back to We Are West Ham. And I'm absolutely delighted this afternoon, as we built up to in the week, to welcome none other than Tony Cotty. We had Dean Ashton on last week, one of West Ham's greatest strikers of the modern era. But it's certainly safe to say that now we welcome one of West Ham's greatest strikers of all time. So, Tony, first of all, thanks very much for joining us. How are you? Very kind words, Will. I'm fine, thanks. How are you doing, James? I'm all, I'm all good. Um, yeah, we're all we're all in it together, aren't we? We're all in the lockdown. So um, I must admit, I'm running out of jobs. You know, I've done the gardening. I've done a bit of cleaning. <laughs> so just, um, my wife's keeping me busy, which is good. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I mean, the main thing is uh, health-wise, I'm fine. And, um, you know, we're just looking forward, hopefully, to getting back to some sort of normality sometime in the future. Now, Tony, you'll, you'll forgive me because when I put the, uh, mentioned it to a few people during the week that we were speaking to you for the podcast on Monday and understandably I was expecting a lot of my family and friends support West Ham as well. So I was expecting a load of questions to come back about, you know, your, all your greatest football achievements and the people you played with and all that sort of thing. But all I've had is the amount of family links we appear to have. So it turns out my girlfriend's dad was in your year at school. Your mum used to live in the same apartment block as my great aunt. 
my granddad used to be your dad's accountant and my cousin used to pick you up before West Ham and you'd sit in his box. So or you'll forgive me if I don't ask you anything about football. It might just be I'm trying to find out whether I should be calling you Uncle Tony. Uh, <laughs> we never know, do you nowadays? Um, yeah, I think the thing is, what I always say, and I think it's true, is like we talk about the West Ham family, and I think you know the the area obviously that I was brought up in, brought up originally in the East End, moved out to Essex, which is where I am now, and you know very much a, part, a massive part of my life is West Ham. So you know invariably wherever I go, wherever I bump into. You know, like someone knows someone or you meet a cousin or long lost aunt or whatever. So, yeah, I'm not surprised about a few questions like that. Absolutely. So first thing, I mean, you, you've covered it there. Um, first, everyone around you so, sort of happy and he- or healthy enough at the moment. Yeah, all good. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, I'm, 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 uh, I'm living down in the South End area. I'm in Leon C with uh, my wife, Karen, and um, her boy, Sam, and he's working from home. I've got three children, but um, my daughter's 10 minutes down the road and you know, obviously, you just can't see your kids. My mother, too, one's in Aylesbury and the other one's in Surrey. So we're sort of scattered all around the outskirts of London at the moment. And looking forward to the day when you can not just do what we're doing now, but obviously, you know, put your arms around and give them a cuddle and, you know, show them a bit of love, really. Absolutely. And as far as the football sort of situation goes, I was interested to, I saw a piece you did with Andy Dillon from The yeah. Sun a few weeks ago, just saying... Uh, you know how when in 1986-85-86 the, the best season the club has, has ever had pretty much you were such a huge part of that and is obviously what you're most well known for at the Hammers and your comments there saying because of I think it was bad weather earlier in the season there was an in, a massive fixture backlog at the end of that season where I, I, forgive me for not getting the numbers right but you played a serious amount of games in quite a short space of time it was like averaged out of perhaps one game every three days or so in that last-minute tilt for the title. And so what are your thoughts on the situation at the moment about whether, you know, any restarts? There's been lots and lots of people giving their opinions and talking different things about whether it's moral for the Premier League to come back or, you know, should we just hand Liverpool the title now? There's so many different people saying so many different things. Just interested to get your thoughts on the whole thing. Yeah, I think the the thing is, well, is that the situation is changing so rapidly. I think we've not just the football situation but obviously in terms of what's going on in the world the health situation in terms of vaccines and you know cures and everything else you know that that could it might take a year it might take two years it might it might happen next month we just don't know do we so everything's up in the air um i've always been very pro finishing the season um i think it's i think it's important because we've as we know west ham have played 29 games and We've got nine really difficult games coming up, and you know you want to you want to stay up on merit. You, you, I don't think you want to stay up because they've decided to pack the league in, and you know like, well, we don't get relegated. I think it's in a way that would be nice, obviously, but I also think to the integrity of the Premier League. It, it, I've said all along it would be important to finish the games. Having said all that, I, I do think it's changed a little bit because they're now talking about neutral venues, which for me. Um, you know, with our difficult games coming up, I think we've got five home games. I might be wrong, but I think it's five home games. And with the five home games, you're thinking, well, you've got the home advantage, obviously, and you would have had the crowd behind you as well, which, as we know as West Ham fans, it can make a big difference. So if you now go to a neutral venue and you're playing in front of no fans, that's not really going to help the teams that are fighting in relegation. And as I said, there's six clubs down there. So I don't know. It's changing all the time. I hope they can come up with a compromise that, 
sort of suits everyone because it, it's, it's not ideal. I think we just need to accept we've got to finish this season, play the nine games. Whatever will be, will be in terms of relegation, Champions League. We know Liverpool are going to win the league. That's already done. We know that. But, you know, whatever happens, we've just got to finish the season whenever it's safe to do so because that's the key thing, I think. When it's safe for the players and everyone who's going to be involved, still about three, 400 people have got to go to a ground just to make a close, behind closed doors game happen. When it's safe to do that, we've got to do it. If that's June, great. If it's September, December, as far as I'm concerned, let's just get it done and then we then look to reschedule the next season. But, you know, I want fans back watching football matches as soon as it's safe to do so because that's what football's about, the fans. You know, I've played... Funny enough, I was talking about my, my brother's birthday and I was talking about where, in the old days, where I was coming through as a young kid playing in the reserves with the great Trevor Brookin and Frank Lampard Sr. And you'd play, they was coming back from injury and I was a young kid, 16-year-old. But we were playing at Upton Park, but there was no fans. So all you could hear is the shouts and the manager and the coaches screaming at you. And it's, it's a really sort of bizarre uh, experience and that's what the players will go through and that will be a, a neutral venue as well. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Just, just on that as well, Tony, I think uh, Brighton have said that they'd only support um, playing at neutral venues if the, the, the possibility of releg relegation is, is removed. And that kind of defeats the object, doesn't it, a little bit? Because otherwise, some of the, some of the teams down the bottom, they're only really playing for then a place, uh, maybe a couple of places higher than they were already. So, I mean, kind of, they kind of, if they're going to carry on the season, they've got to keep it the way it is, surely. Yeah. I think so, James. Yeah, I think that was sort of the point I was trying to make. I don't really want, um, as much as I love West Ham, I, you almost don't want them staying up by default. You want them staying up by merit, you know, in an ideal world. But the problem we've got, um, you know, we keep using that word unprecedented, and it is because it's there's no real, you know, we'll mention the fixture backlog, but, you know, we, were, we was always going to finish that season. With how things are now, we're waiting for, you know, to safely finish the season that's as I keep coming back to the key word everyone's got to be fit and healthy and safe about things so um, I understand where Brighton are coming from I really do you know they're going to lose their home advantage they're going to lose playing in front of their fans it's a great stadium the Amex Stadium and I'm sure that would make a difference in certain games but you know we are where we are with it and, and the way it's looking in terms of supporters going to a game again at the moment it's very hard to see that happening again this year let alone no, for the start of the next season with that September or whenever that might be. Yeah. yeah, I think I, th I think the the trouble I've had I think with it at, at first because a lot of my opinion is just come on, why are we even talking about it? It feels really uncomfortable and a bit crass to talk about football. Obviously, mine and James's livelihood rely on football. We work it's sort of on the on the media side of the game me, and me too well, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, we've all had we've got friends and colleagues and people who've you know been laid off or furloughed or are a bit concerned about their their futures. And whilst you know it's in our personal interest for the for the game to come back, and it's just it's felt a little bit uncomfortable for me, despite the fact that it would affect me personally. If it doesn't, the longer it goes on, the more chance it's got of affecting us personally. I just think ultimately everyone's in such a you know uncomfortable position across the nation and people who you know don't care about football or things like that it, it's, it's so much more important for for us to focus you know the idea of nhs uh, doctors and i think simon uh, steve Parrish, sorry the crystal palace chairman said the other day he'd feel uncomfortable about using up um doctors and paramedics that need to be in attendance at games if it meant the nhs i think it's ten thousand uh, covid19 tests would be required 
to get the Premier League going. It does feel a little bit, or it has felt a little bit uncomfortable for me, but it was only recently, I think it was that same um, parish did a Sunday Times column and he said, you know, the all football we're trying to do is A, get back to work, and B, so many people in the country rely on football as their bit of respite during the week. They, you know, whatever they might do, they might be a nurse or a doctor or a bricklayer or a plumber, electrician, accountant, whatever it might be. Lots of people, so many people in the country do that nine to five during the week, which they're still doing at the moment, just in different circumstances. And to have some football on at the weekend, regardless of whether it might not be as we all know it, that respite might just be something that these people really, and that the country needs at the moment. So I am, yeah, no, I am I, convinced. I that will, yeah. and, and the thing is as well, it's not just going to be at the weekend. It's pretty much, I think you'll find it will pro- almost be every night. There will be a game. So, you know, we're, as I said at the start, we're sort of all in this together. And, you know, if you can do what they're doing, the NHS has been amazing. And when they come home, whether you're NHS or key work, you come home and you can watch a game of football, which is what we're all missing. But we've all got to get our head around the fact it's not going to be football like we've seen previously because there's going to be no fans at the game. So we've, we've all got to get our head around it. I know Sky are talking about crowd effects and things like that. So they will make it as good as they can. But it will be different for a period of time. I think... And we just hope that they can, like I say, they can find a cure or a vaccine and then hopefully we can all get immune to this horrible disease and then we can start going back to the football grounds. Tony, let's, let's talk a little bit about your, your time at West Ham. Uh, two spells at the club, uh, 146 goals, puts you fifth in the all-time top goalscorer list at the club. Um, before we get on to that, though, I was doing a little bit of research into your goals in your career. And, you know, there's this big talk at the moment that, you know, it has been for a while that, you know, that football did exist before the Premier League. Um, and everyone talks about Shearer being the, the all-time top goal scorer and the 100 club in the Premier League and stuff like that. But um, I was looking into it. It's only four people in, to- in top-tier history that scored more goals than you in the first division. Um, how do you feel about that, given that you kind of almost forgotten as a, as a, a great goal scorer in, in the, you know, the top tier of English football, now that the Premier League sort of the, where it is now? Uh, highly annoying, I think. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, listen, you know, I, we all see the, the the Premier League 100 club that Sky sort of obviously featured all the great strikers who scored over 100 Premier League goals. I think I ended up with 78, if my memory serves me right. Um, but then there was another 140 odd before that in the old Division One, as you a lot of them for West Ham, as you as you just mentioned. So, um, listen, it is what it is, and um, you know the. The advent of the Premier League took football onto another level, and you know we all enjoy the great product it is nowadays. But um, you know the stats are there, and if you if you sort of merge the stats together, and then I think I'm in the top twenty all-time goal scorers, and that that'll do for me. You know, I know the Premier League's great, and it is what it is. But um, only Alan Shearer, since the day I retired, only Alan Shearer scored more goals than me, so I'll stick that one for the Premier League. He scored more in England than Cristiano Ronaldo, so that's something to hang on to as well. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. Don't get me down that route. He's a fantastic player. <laughs> you know what, James? I, 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 I always say that um, I was a good goal scorer. And on my day, I was a very good goal scorer. And you never knew when your day was going to be, obviously. But, you know, I played football because I loved scoring goals. That was the biggest thrill, the best feeling. And to do that, you know, especially as a, as a West Ham boy, to break into the team and play with your heroes and score and with the fans that I've been going to the games with two years previous it was a you know it's an unbelievable feeling for me that's what I've always thought it must be you know it must be great to be in Rio Ferdinand and have his career that he's had and be one of the best 
centre-halves probably in the world at one point in his career. That must be great. But no one cheers a tackle or a clearing header half as much as they do a goal, no matter what stage of the game it's at or, or what the environment is. Oh, that, that, just that feeling even once of, of scoring a goal and hearing the roar, it, it, must, be, it must be incomparable. Tony, we had Dean Ashton on last week and he was great. He was, it was really refreshing to talk to Dean because he, had, he was really pragmatic about his career. Obviously, he's, he's sort of most well known now um, for his career, unfortunately, being cruelly cut short because of the injury. I think uh, he officially retired at 26. But I think he was sort of 24, 25 when the injury happened. Before he'd done that, he'd obviously scored in an FA Cup final for West Ham. But what he said, which I thought was interesting, was he never had a club growing up. His dad and his parents didn't necessarily take him to a team. So it wasn't like you, me and James and and the thousands of people across the land who are tied to a team emotionally from since they were born, basically. Dean never had a team. He just enjoyed playing the game. And he was really pragmatic about his career. He said, look, I I scored an FA Cup final um, for a club that I grew to love and yeah, it was cut short, but I was, I had an, you know, I was paid really well and I had an excellent life and I'm, I'm still having a good life because of it now. And he was able to stay really pragmatic. You are obviously the other side of that because you're a West Ham fan. You've just mentioned there how when you, it was like a dream come true coming in to play for the team you've always loved and played for. What I'm interested to hear about you, you left obviously on, on two occasions. How did they, first of all, just to remind everyone how they come about, obviously Everton, um, first, and it was actually uh, Selangor, the Malaysian club you left for the second time round before Leicester, wasn't it? Just talk yeah. us through first um, about sort of how they came around, and what I'm more interested to hear is how did you feel about that, given you had such a passionate tie to West Ham outside of just playing? Well, it was very difficult. Well, um, I mean, particularly first time. I mean, the first time when I left was my choice, and the second time when I went to Selangor was the club's choice or Harry Redknapp, who was the manager at the time, he's told me basically. But in terms of the, the, um, the first time I left, um, I think uh, a couple of things really sort of were behind it. Um, the boys of 86 season was, I'm guessing you two are too young to remember it or have been at the games. Like I'm guessing by looking at you how young you are, you know, so, but it was, it was an incredible season. Um, and I got a taste of what it would be like to be challenging to try and, you know, not only just win the league, but we got to the FA Cup quarterfinal, we got really close and we should have done better that year, you know, in terms of the cup performances. Um, the start of the following season, I then got in the England squad. Um, and then once you get, or once you're back in the 80s, once you got in that England squad, you're then talking to players who are at Manchester United, Everton, Liverpool, Arsenal, all the so-called top clubs. And they're all talking about, you know, they're playing in an FA Cup final, they're, they're trying to win the league and all these sort of things, great great thing no Europe back then because obviously it was a ban on but they was all talking about and, and, and the money side of it and it, you know money came up and I thought wow they're getting five six times more than me because I'd come through the youth system at West Ham so after the 86 season I then had two seasons where uh, I funny enough I scored more goals after the, 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 the season after the 86 I scored more goals and then the following season I was really unsettled and I was just getting frustrated because I wanted the club to move on. I wanted us to sign big name players and try and kick on as a football club. And we never did that. We never signed the players. Obviously, Frank Mack left. Waldy, um, I think he left eventually. And uh, Paul Goddard left. He was a really good squad player. So, you know, the, 
that what you would call some of the top players were leaving, and in the, in the end, it was just it was a, it was really hard for me because I am a West Ham boy, and I didn't personally I didn't want to leave the club. Why why would I, I was living in the area, I played for my team, but professionally I was I, I felt that I know football is such a short career, and I I felt that I needed to try something different just to try win the trophies and achieve what I wanted to do. Obviously, I went to Everton and won absolutely nothing. So that's, that's the funny thing about it all. But um, I went to Everton for six years and then I came back. I had two great years back at the club, top scorer. And then Harry, I think he'd overspent. He brought a lot of sort of European players in. Radichoyan, Dumitrescu, uh, Paolo Futri, Dana. You might remember some of those names. You might be old enough to name a few of those boys, you know. He spent a lot of money, Slavin Bilic, Mark Reaper, you know, good players, really good players, but he spent a lot of money and he needed to get money in. So he then the offer came in from Malaysia. Where that came from, I don't know. And you know, I was I was just disappointed because I didn't want to leave. I wanted to stay. And you mentioned my goals, the 146 goals. I probably would have got above the two guys in third and fourth. And I would have been third behind, you know, Vic Watson and Jeff Hurst. And that was what I wanted to do. I wanted the goal scoring records, but it wasn't to be, and I left, and, and I thought that was it. The career was over, and then, of course, I then had three years back at Leicester in the Premier League and scored another 34 goals for Leicester, which I could have scored for West Ham. So um, that was all a bit frustrating, but uh, as I say, first time was definitely my instigation, second time to clubs. Yeah, I mean, I don't think many fans would begrudge you wanting to win trophies. I mean, that's what, that's what the game's for, isn't it? So... Um, um, so I don't think many fans would begrudge you that. But one thing that I was reading up on this this morning and your second spell just before you left, uh, it, this article specifically said that you, you lost your place in the team because of Florin Radicheu and Hugo Porfirio. Um, and if that is definitely true, that must have been quite a hard pill to swallow, no? Because I mean, both of their West Ham careers were, were very, very short-lived. Yeah, I forgot about the second one with Hugo. Yeah, um... Yeah, that, that was the frustrating thing about it, James. He's like, um, as I said, I came back. Harry bought me specifically to do a job. The job was to score the goals to keep the club in the Premier League, which I did. I think I got 13 league goals, which, you know, we, we, we're desperate for something to get 13 league goals now, aren't we? And West Ham, we'd love that now. Mm-hmm. Um, that kept us in. We had a, had a good season in the end. We, you know, we, we beat Blackburn. That was the famous season where we drew in Man United and Blackburn won the title. That was the first year back. And then the second year back, I, I, I didn't play as many games. You know, I was coming on sub a few times, but I still got 10 league goals, the same as Dixie, and ended up joint scorer. So for someone to be top scorer in those two seasons, and then through no fault of my own, I got injured in pre-season. I pulled my calf muscle. I was out for six weeks. And by the time I come back, I had about six European players and Ian Dowie in front of me. So uh, <laughs> to say I was frustrated is... is, uh, is <laughs> Being polite, but um, yeah, and that, and that was it. And of course, so when Harry said, "Look, if you leave, it will help the club financially," you know, I obviously had to take that on board. And um, you know, it just tickled me a little bit that when I went to Malaysia and I came back to Leicester, and then there was a rumour that you know, through an agent, "Oh, Harry wants to re-sign you for West Ham." And I think, well, why did you let me go? Because I was top scorer. You surely, you know, sort of bringing in other names, but you, you try and keep your top goal scorer, and that. That was great frustration to me because the plan, when I went back second spell, obviously I had six years away and I'd come back and i think, well, now I want to settle down now. I came back, I think I was 30 years of age, 30, 31 in my seasons. And, you know, I knew that I could play to 34, 35, which I did at Leicester. And I just wanted to start the club, but it wasn't to be. Um, if you Listen, if you asked me 
a question about you know my greatest regret in football. You know, I, I try not to be too cynical about it because I love the experience of playing for Everton, playing for Leicester, travelling to Malaysia. Playing, I loved all those experiences, but I wish I was sitting here today talking to you and having played 18 years in the first team at West Ham. And I think I would be probably in second place in terms of the top goal scorers. I would be up there just behind Vic Watson, but it wasn't to be. You know, and that's that's one of the slight regrets I think of my career that I didn't just play for West Ham. Tony, it's really interesting for me. That's one thing I'm particularly interested about when we're lucky enough on this show to speak to quite a few um, ex-players. And one thing I'm always intrigued by, especially with someone like you who's loved West Ham before you played and still does afterwards, how at what stage, you know, the because as fans, it's so easy, isn't it, to say, oh, you know, I'd give anything to, to play once for West Ham and I'd give anything to score once. And if that was me in that position, I'd do anything and I'd stay there for whatever money. But I'm always interested to hear how, when, when that unconditional love for the club stops and your own personal sort of respect comes in. Mark Noble's a really fascinating case for me because whilst, you know, I, I find I'm sure everyone loves him, understandably, but I look at it and think if Mark Noble, I think Mark Noble's been lucky that he's been as good as West Ham have been as a club for his entire career. If he was a great deal better than he was, undoubtedly, I would have thought he would have taken another move if possible. And by the flip side, if he wasn't as good as he's been, or if he fell below the level of the club, he probably would have been let go. But one thing that I'm sure would have tested your club loyalty and your loyalties to West Ham, James highlighted this fact to me this morning, that there's only one club who you played for who you didn't score for, and that was Millwall right at the end of your career. What are you bringing that up for? <laughs> I, uh, how did that come about? And was that easy enough to put your claret and blue glasses to one side for a second to, uh, to go and turn out of the den? Uh, it's quite a funny story, actually, because um, this was my last season as a player. Um, now, bear in mind, I, I started the season in the Premier League with Leicester. I then went to Norwich for about six or seven weeks, and I, was, I wasn't particularly happy there. Then I had the chance to become the player manager of Barnet which I did for five months, and then that didn't really work out, and I left Barnet. So I'd already had three clubs in one season. This is obviously in the days before the transfer window. Um, and then I'd, where I played Premier League, the equivalent, Premier League Championship and League Two, the only division I hadn't played in was League One. So I'm me being the sort of stato bloke that I was, I thought, well, if I could play for a League One club, it might be a little quirky thing that one day I'll look back and oh, that was quite a good experience. But... The only problem was the only team that came in for me from League One was Millwall. <laughs> right, so when, when, when the agent said about it, I think, oh, I'm not sure about this, you know, like it's because it's, you know the rivalry, you know what it means to the fans. And I, as I said, I'm a fan. But I also had to make a professional decision and they was, they was offering the most money. Um, I could commute, obviously, to, to the training ground and the ground because I was living in Chigwell at the time, so it was pretty easy for me. So I signed, I was only there for six weeks. I was pretty much injured the whole of the six weeks. Um, I had a groin strain and I couldn't shake it off. So I made two substitute appearances, one for 15 minutes and the other for four minutes. So I only played 19 minutes. But what was quite funny is that obviously I was sub for all the games and I had my Millwall tracksuit on. So you saw the manager say, get warmed up. So I'd run down towards the Millwall fans with my Millwall tracksuit on. And I won't swear because you won't allow me to and I don't want to. But they, the fans were shouting to me, 
get walled up, you West Ham. And you can imagine what the next word was. So the Millwall fans knew I was West Ham, and I know I'm West Ham, you know, with the Millwall tracks on. So it was all a bit funny. And actually, Millwall had a great team there. And Tim Cahill was there at the time. Sean Dyche was there. So, you know, really good players. Um, Neil Harris, another manager, you know, so that it was a really good team. And they actually got promoted from League One. And uh, I'd hardly played any games. And just to top it all off, they said to me, the manager said, we're going to do the victory parade where we're going to present the parade, the trophy and all that. You come on the open uh, top bus and everything. I went, there's no way that I'm going on that victory parade. So I just, he said, why not? I said, I'm not, I'm not doing it. I knew that that was one thing I couldn't do. But yeah, listen, if I look back, you know, again, I, I said about regrets, I, I would try and change the fact, but it's the stats there. And at least he didn't score for him. I suppose that's the only thing I can say. <laughs> yeah, well done on that one, yeah. <laughs> right, what, one last one while we're in this little nostalgic section. It, you can't associate your name with West Ham United without mentioning Frank McAvenny. Your, your goal-scoring record stands up on its own, of course. But there's so many, especially more so in, in olden days football, as we'll call it. But football gone past, it's less so now. There's more, a lot more one up front. People want to dominate the midfield more. But strike partnerships were everywhere, weren't they? And you and Frank get mentioned all the time in the same conversation, understandably so, because you were so successful during West Ham's best ever top flight season, certainly in recent memory. And Frank McAvenny, you're, you're still friends with him now. That's what I, I think is really heartwarming for, for me and for a lot of West Ham fans. We've had uh, Tony Gale on this show at the end of last year. I know a good friend of yours now. You still speak to Frank. I, I saw a uh, Frank McAvenny said in... Late 2019, he described you as a lazy little sod. True. <laughs> still, uh, st- still such, such close friends. But just talk to us about Frank a bit as a, as a footballer, obviously, but as a man as well, because I think it's really, like I say, it's really heartening to hear the genuine warmth with which a few of you who are clearly still friends still talk about each other. And I think that, that's a, a lot of that's lost in the game now, understandably, because players move on a lot more, perhaps friendships can't be formed as quickly lots of different nationalities it might be a bit harder just talk to us a bit about Frank and your relationship with him on and off the pitch yeah well I mean it was interesting really because obviously but we're going back to the summer of 85 and West Ham had had a typical West Ham season I think we beat a few of the big teams and we finished like we flirted with relegation and we had some good players at the club but we weren't really going anywhere. No, this, this all sounds a bit familiar to me. <laughs> so, anyway, so the summer of 85, um, John Lowell decided to, to sign Frank McAvenny. And um, I did, I've got to be honest, I've never, ever heard of Frank. Never, never heard of him. Um, and all I read was in the paper that he was, because obviously there's no internet, there's no communication. All you get is a newspaper and you read what's in the paper. And it said, West Ham signed forward Frank McAvenny. So I, I straight away thought to myself, wow, there's me, there's Paul Goddard and Frank McAvenny. Like, and I wasn't silly. I think, well, there's only two playing up front. If Frank's the new signing, Paul Goddard had been a, a, obviously come in, done really well, was a really good player, Sarge. And I'm the, the youth kid, who, the kid who's come through the club. And I'm thinking, well, if anyone's going to get left out, it's me. So I went round to John Knowles' house in the summer of 85 and sat down, had a cup of tea with him, the manager. And he said, look, don't worry. He said, I'm playing... You and Paul Goddard up front and Frank McAvenny is going to play what you youngsters now will call the number 10 role, attacking midfielder. That's, that's going to be our formation. Now, bearing in mind it's in the mid-80s and everyone goes on about how brilliant the, the managers are in inventing all these new positions and that. We actually started the season with a number 10 and that was Frank. So, um, after 40 minutes of the first game at Birmingham we was playing and Paul Goddard dislocated his shoulder and he didn't play for six months after that. 
So straight away, John moved Frank up front with me, the two of us up front, and then Alan Dickens came on a sub, who was a really good player, and played in the midfield. We just went to 4-4-2. We lost the first game, and then the next home game, we won the QPR 3-1. Frank scored two goals, and that was it. He was just the darling of the terraces. Um, but I, I actually had a slow start to the season. I didn't score in the first six games. And then I got left out. And then when I came back, uh, I was only out for one game. And then I scored seven games on the trot. And then I think from that moment where I got my head in gear, Frank, Frank was flying right from the start. But when I got my head in gear and got back on form, as a partnership, I don't think there was too many. Better. I mean, I know you had Russian Dalgleish at Liverpool, Dixon and Speedy. There were some good sort of combinations, but me and Frank really clicked. And the good thing about John Lowe, he was such a great, innovative coach that he put the training sessions on for me and Frank. The whole training session was based around getting the ball forward, getting the ball wide, getting the crosses in. We had Mark Ward, another new signing on the right. And then Alan Devonshire had come back from injury. He was the greatest player that I played with at West Ham. And so you had some real, with Alan Dickens in midfield, there was some amazing talent. But we just, we just gelled. After that first seven or eight games, me and Frank gelled. We worked harder in training. Obviously, as characters, um, completely different characters. You know, I was very much, play the game on a Saturday, you go in the players' lounge and with your family, you come back home, you have a takeaway and watch a match of the day. That was my Saturday night. Whereas Frank was in the players' lounge having probably four, five, six pints, and then he was getting a taxi up to Stringfellas and having a great time, which I don't know which one's right and which one's wrong, but it depends on where you're coming from. But um, we was completely different characters. But we're, um, it's, it's amazing that there's so much of affection for not just us two, but for that team that we played in. I mean, obviously, we finished third. Um, uh, me, me being the boring stato that I am the other, the other day, I, I, I was... I'm a little bit bored and I thought I'll have a little check and see how many club records still survive from the 85-86 season. Do you want to have a guess at how many club records still survive, you two? Well, I, I know the, un the unbeaten run still stands at 18 games, isn't it, or something? Yeah, yeah. So what do you think of the total? That's only one of them. What, what do you reckon the total is? I it's I got reckon clean, five or six. Clean sheets has got to be up there, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, all right. If, I'll, go, I'll go seven. I didn't even look at the clean sheets, which I probably should have done. That could be another one. 17 is the answer. Wow. 17 club records still exist, or, or records that, you know, like, well, for example, eight, eight goals in a, in a league game. That's yeah, only yeah. done twice. Um, you know, most points, most home wins. It's so many records, and that was how unbelievable the season was. Um, then we had one more season together, me and Frank. We only played, I think we played uh, just over 100 games. Uh, sorry, we scored over. We scored, played just over two seasons, and we scored over a hundred goals between us, just in two seasons. Me and Frank, so it was an incredible partnership. And obviously, when Celtic came in, it was the equivalent of me being at Everton and a West Ham fan. And you know, West Ham come in for me. You're always going to go to your your team you supported as a boy. So it was no surprise when Frank left. Um, but uh, just incredible memories, incredible, incredible memories. As I say, very different characters, but. We gelled on the pitch and we had a great time playing in what was a fantastic team. So we're still here with one of West Ham's all-time great goal scorers and general great bloke, still a face around West Ham, a, uh, a man that we all love to hear speaking about the club on the TV, on the radio now, on the We Are West Ham podcast for the first time. Tony, one thing uh, we, we, 
had a look back there and we'll, we'll cover in a few of the listener questions that have come in for you at the end. We'll do a little bit more of that. But for now, just, just to skip away from football a minute quickly, there's so much going on that we've covered in society at the moment about people being unwell and how people are affected by this. One thing that many fans would have been surprised to hear about and probably all certainly know about now was the massive health scare you had yourself in 2019. It was a brain hemorrhage. You were just preparing to do an advert for Sky Sports, I believe. I think this was July. 2019 Phil Thompson was there to to make sure you got to the hospital okay and you weren't feeling too well how first of all talk us through that and just remind everyone what it was that that happened again and and I'm just interested to hear how that changed your perspective and just sort of your feelings towards your own health and and just a bit of perspective on on your life yeah well you're right it was um, July last year um I'd had pretty sort of hectic end of the season I'd had a few holidays where you go away and enjoy yourself and do what we're all doing we're all trying all got busy lives trying to enjoy ourselves cram as much in as possible um, so I, I was meant to be filming an advert for, for Skybet and um, anyone will know trying to get from South End to West London in the morning on, on, on a, it was a Tuesday morning is not a good idea so I thought well I'll go and stay in a hotel Monday night which I did I'd had a golf day uh, with Gailey and um, it was very hot. I hadn't worn a cap. We had a barbecue after the golf day. So when I started feeling unwell, I'm thinking I've either got sunstroke or, or food poisoning. That was the obvious things to me, you know. Um, so it was around about midnight, I think. I just started to get a real, really bad headache right in the, in the centre of my forehead. Um, I had it for a couple of hours. I started to be violently sick. Um, and there was two things. I mean, the headache... And the way I was being sick, without being too graphic, were on a different level to anything I'd ever experienced in life. You know, listen, we've all been sick when we're drunk, etc. And we've all had hangovers. But this was on a different level to, to anything that I'd ever experienced. So um, when I woke up in the morning, I, you know, me being now I'm British, I'll get on with it. I've got to go to work and all that sort of stuff. So I had a shower. I got that shower. And then I was sick again twice. And uh, I rang my wife up and she just said, well, is there anyone there who can help you? And I said, well, the only one I know that's in the hotel was Tomo, Phil Thompson. And so I rang Tomo. He came to the hotel and um, came in the room and it was obvious just by looking at me how bad I was. And he just said, I'll get you a doctor. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, good luck with that one because it takes me two weeks to get an appointment where I live. So I'm thinking, if you can get a doctor, Tomo, you've done brilliant. And within an hour, this doctor arrived and he was from Harley Street. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is, a, this is a good hotel, like you know, to get a doctor on <laughs> Anyway, the doctor came in, he gave me a, a jab in my backside, to, like a vulture hole to kill the pain a bit. And he said, Look, you've got to go to hospital now. And I went, Well, can I go after? I mean, no, you've got to go now. It was one of them. And uh, But what I didn't know until I saw Tomo about six weeks later when I returned to work was that he'd actually gone down to reception and they said, You know, no doctors available unless you pay for one. And he actually paid for the doctor himself you know and he got the doctor to come to me the doctor then referred me to to the hospital um they'd done um some uh, brain scans and they was checking they thought i had meningitis to, to start with uh and then eventually they got a top sort of neurologist to look at my scan and he, he said i've had a bleed on the brain so straight away well, you're going to charing cross so i had to go from west middlesex to charing cross and then I was in Charing Cross for four days. And then when I eventually got discharged, I had six weeks full rest and recuperation at home. So it was, yeah, it was a, it was a very sort of traumatic time. And I went through it. Obviously, only my, my close friends and family knew it at the time. And 
you know, it's not something you just go and publicise. I was going through what I was going through, and I just the main thing was to get better. Um, and then once I did get better, you then sort of go straight back into the football season. And then, as it turned out, that the start of this year from March, where we are, or where we was, to June, I, I had so much work on. Uh, and I've never really, apart from the six weeks rest, I hadn't really had a chance to have a holiday or anything at all. And I, I was getting tired. So, I, without saying, you know, I've got to be careful how I word this, but the, with what, all what's gone on, it's given me the chance to actually really, really rest, I think, over the last six weeks. And so, when things get going again, I'll be in a much better. But obviously, I've not been on a holiday, you know, no one's been away. But I felt like I was just getting a bit tired again. But it's been a tough, it's been a tough year or so. And it's, I think it was a warning. And I think if you get a warning in life and you don't listen to the warning, then then you're stupid. So, you know, I'm trying to listen to the warning. I've got good people around me and they're all keeping an eye on me. But it's a bit of a surreal experience because when someone like yourself asks me about it, you, you have to sort of think, oh, yeah, that was actually me, you know, because you, you're so used to talking about other people. And it was it was me and it, it was scary at certain times. It was really scary. What does that do for your sort of perspective um, sort of moving forward, obviously, it's got a serious thing that happens to you like from a health perspective. Uh, you know, you said that you'd, you, know, you had a lot of work on, you kind of needed a bit of a break, you needed a bit of a rest. Um, what sort of perspective did that give you after? Do, do you have a completely different outlook on life, given that you know, you, you've had such a serious health problem previously? Um, I, think, uh, I think I'm pretty laid back, James. So I've got quite, um, quite a sort of laid back attitude to life. So... Uh, it was just sort of getting your head around it from a medical point of view and, you know, realising that I literally had to sit to the right where I am now in the room for six weeks. Luckily, the cricket was on and, I, you know, I loved the, the World Cup was on and the, the, the Ashes was on. I'm just sitting watching the cricket and it helped me to just sort of relax and just get through what I wanted to get through. But, you know, I, I think um, I think you learn that life's precious. Um, you... I think you appreciate the people that are around you a bit more because, you know, like obviously my wife and my kids are all worried that they was going to lose me and everything. Because, you know, when, when you get told that your husband's had a brain hemorrhage or your dad's had a brain hemorrhage, it's not a nice thing to hear. So they was all worried about me. Um, so I've tried to I've tried to take it easy. And when my body tells me, which it does sometimes, when it says, look, you know, you're doing too much, go and, go and have a sit down, I'll go and watch a tipping point or something in the afternoon, which I would never have done before, you know, but you... You sit down and watch a quiz show and you just literally try and relax for an hour or so and it, it recharges you and off you go again. But I, I think we're all striving in life to get the balance right. You know, obviously, you know, I had a wonderful time as a footballer, but being honest with you, I still need to go to work. I still need to bring money into my household. I'm, I'm second time around in terms of marriages. So, you know, I'm still trying to get the balance right in my life. But I think when you have a health scare, it, it does put things in perspective a little bit. And you just have to, oh, you know, pull yourself back a little bit and, you know, just take it easy when you have to take it easy. Well, Tony, I'm sure everyone at um, West Ham was obviously worried about it at first to, to hear about that. But great to hear you're, uh, you're back on the yeah, mend. Yeah, well, if I could just say, I had so many well wishes from the West Ham fans, like people across, you know, the, the, obviously the social media platforms, just walking down the road and, you know, bumping in. When I went to the ground, you know, to watch the Hammers play, so many people wished me well. And I'd like to thank anyone who might be watching for all their kind wishes over the last year or so. Absolutely, yeah. I think it was, um, yeah, it was worrying for obviously worrying for you, but I think worrying for for everyone else listening. You know, you're on the TV all the time. You're, you, know, you won't mind me saying, and don't think it's too flirty, but you still look great for <laughs> for the age you're at now. You look younger than me and James. You've been telling us how young we both look. <laughs> 
exactly yeah um no so great great to hear you on the mend obviously to to bring it back to to the football now and and the current state of the team i remember it's a, an anecdote that i tell people quite a lot about you i remember it's a few years ago it was when we were in the championship and uh, i've mentioned him already but paul hamilton my cousin i think you may know him used to sit in i, I went along to a West Ham game with him once. And James on this podcast has got a reputation as James Hospo Jones because he, uh, he loves the hospitality seat at the ground every now and then. Sells himself as a man of the people, Tony. But uh, yeah. he said, if, if there's a free dinner and a, and a glass of wine going, then James is all over it. And a cushion seat as well. <laughs> exactly. It, yeah. Exactly. But, um, so and I always remember this story and I tell people about it a lot. I'd, I'd gone along with Paul to a game and you were sitting uh, just behind me in, in the box at Upton Park and we were all chatting about the game. It was a horrible night game in the championship. I can't remember the opponent. And Papa Booba Diop was playing at the, uh, at the heart of, uh, of our holding, our holding midfielder. And there were some conversations about whether he had value to the team or not. And I remember you were quite vociferously putting your point across that he's not, you know, he's not a West Ham style of player. And I remember just saying, I was fairly, I was younger than I am now at the time, obviously. And I just remember, oh, he does a job though. And, uh, and you said, well, what job does he do? And I said, uh, and I thought, oh, hang on a minute. I'm one of West Ham's all time great strikers. He's arguing with me about football here. I think this is probably the time where I shut my mouth and bow to his better knowledge. So I know, I know what st- sort of style of football that you like to play. Obviously, the teams you're involved in and what sort of style of football you think the, the club should be playing now. You'd certainly hope the club are playing now. What are your general thoughts on, on the, the state of the club this season and, and just recently? Um, obviously, had, had some good years. The last year at Upton Park, everyone knows how great that was. Just give us sort of your thoughts on the general state of the club now, the, the type of football they're playing and, um, and what you think sort of the what you think of the club's fortunes at the moment, basically. Well, I think looking at the current squad, there's no doubt we've got a talented squad of individual players. If you if you look at some of the, the, the star players we've got, um, you would say, well, that's not a team that should be in a relegation battle, without a doubt. Um, you know, we should be, certainly in my opinion, as a, as a club, West Ham should always be looking to get into the top 10 of the Premier League. And we know how difficult it is. We know there's a so-called top six. I understand all that. I know how hard it is to get into Europe. Um, you know, but Burnley have done it. Wolves have done it. So why can't West Ham do it? That would be my first thoughts. Um, but I mentioned the word individual. And uh, as we know, it, football is, is an individual sport, but in a team aspect. And you have to have a good team. And I, I think, um, you know, there's two, there's two reasons that you don't have a, a good team. I think that's obviously the players, because they're the ones out on the pitch. You know, we all moan about the ground or the newspapers or the manager or the fans or you might about anything but on a Saturday when the game kicks off there's 11 players on the field they are the ones who have to take responsibility so I think over the last four seasons since we left the old ground I think we've put out teams of good individual players but we haven't had a good team you know not consistently we've had some good performances before we say that we've had some good performances um, so that's the first thing. I think sometimes we've not played well as a team. And certainly this season, as a team, we've not been particularly good, despite the fact we've got good players. And I think secondly, and probably most importantly, really, because they're the, the person that keeps everything together, is the manager. 
And, you know, I love Slav, and I know that I'm a bit biased. He's an old teammate. And I love Slav, and I wish Slav was still in charge. You've only got to look at what he's doing at West Brom now to know that he knew what he was doing. Loved great last season, as you mentioned. I wish he was still there, but he's not. We then appoint David Moyes, who, you know, after the, the issues of moving ground and, and you know, losing Slaven, you needed someone to bring stability to the football club, which he did. Um, and when we then appointed Pellegrini, I'm thinking, I don't understand this because I couldn't quite see the attraction anyway, to be honest with you. And I, you know, I know he won the league at Man City, but I think, you know, the three of us would have a good chance of winning the league at Man City with all the players they've got. So um, I didn't quite get that one. Um, and I'm just thinking, well, we don't need a so-called big name manager. We need stability. We needed someone to, to take the club from where we were under Slav, I don't know, 15th or whatever. We needed someone to take us to 10th and then go 9th and then 8th and then 7th and then eventually start to challenge. The job, in other words, that David Moyes did at Everton, which he, he was fighting relegation and by the time he left, they was a established top 10 club going for Europe. And that's what I thought he would have done. You know, there's no point in going on about Pellegrini now. They chose him, it didn't work out and the players weren't having him obviously at the end. So to have, for me, to have David Moyes back now is the right appointment to bring stability to the club, to hopefully just settle things down a little bit and try and get us to get in that top 10 next season and then slowly look to improve on that, you know, because it's, it's not an overnight job. I know we're all frustrated. The one thing about West Ham fans at the moment, self-included, is that word frustration. We are all so frustrated with the club not kicking on to where we should be. So we are frustrated, but it will take time. It's, it's, it's a tough world for Premier League. It's always been tough. It's just as tough, if not even harder now. So I think we've just got to stick with David Moyes, you know, stay up um, this season. Hopefully, you know, we've already gone through all what may or may not happen, but hopefully if we resume the season, stay in the Premier League and then look to keep on next year. Yeah, I think I, think I do agree with you on, on the David Moyes front in that, we need stability and, you know, if there's a manager out there that can bring stability to a football club over a period of time and not just over six months, then David Moyes has got to be one of the best ones out there. I've been yeah. quite impressed with what he said um, over the last sort of five or six months in terms of the way he wants to approach the transfer windows. Because, um, you know, as you know, previously the transfers and the transfer strategy sort of hasn't really been a strategy as such. It's kind of almost been scattergun. Um, a lot of free transfers here and there, players at the end of their careers... Um, lots of money spent on sort of, you know, average players um, and players that sort of, you know, don't seem to know what it's really like to sort of play for a club like West Ham and really put that effort in. Uh, and David Moyes has said, said a lot about how he wants to dip into the championship uh, for sort of young players. He's already done that with Jared Bowen. Do you think that with David Moyes, with that mentality, um, instilling that kind of mentality into the football club and then get, giving that mentality into the players, he is the right man to then take us into... Know Europe eventually, or do you think that he's just the guy just to set us, you know, make us top 10 and then we get someone in to then push us forward? Well, I mean, let's not forget that David's had European experience with both Everton and Manchester United, so the answer yeah. really, I suppose, that question would be yes, because he's had that experience with other football clubs. Um, but you, you've got to earn the right to be there, James. And, and you know, I, I totally agree with, with the transfer policy, I think scatterguns a great word, you know. We, uh, you know, I get frustrated because not just the West Ham, but I think clubs across the board, and you, you see them buying players, and you think, well, hold on a sec, we've already got, like, say, a number, like, I spoke about the number 10 position. Right? So, listen, I don't know whether he will or won't be a good player 
in four years' time for West Ham. But Pat Bloodfall now is as an example. Now, I'm looking at it and I think, we've already got three or four players who can play in that position. Mm. And we've spent, what, 20-odd million on him. Now, listen, he might go on and become a West Ham great. We don't know the answer to that. Hopefully, he uh, can be like a, a Al Berkovich or a Dimitri Payet type. Of, I, I don't know. But he also might not be. But, you know, for me, you, you've got to... You've got to buy the players and spend the money wisely, which is what I think David Moyes will do. And, you know, we, we know it's a squad game. It's different to when I played. When I played, there was probably 14 or 15 in the squad. We're now looking at squads of 25 players, which literally means that you want two right-backs, two left-backs, four centre-offs, four centre-forwards, etc. So you want two for each position and obviously your three goalies. So there's no point in only having one left-back at the club, but you've got four right-backs. And, yeah. you know, this is the thing. This side, I just think there just needs to be a little bit. Uh, it is it is common sense, but whoever is in charge of the recruitment, and I know David Morris will have a huge input into that next season. But whoever's in charge of that needs to work very closely with the manager. And you know, I agree that there are. I, I, I do a lot of the championship for Sky, and there's some fantastic players in the championship. There really is Jared Bowen. I followed him closely over the last two years. The first time I saw him play, I went, "Wow, who is this kid? No, he's a good player, and he's been consistently." He's been the best player in the championship for the last two years. So we've mm. signed a really good player. Um, but you could have signed Jared 18 months ago and you wouldn't have paid £17 million for him. So, you know, they, these, these are all the things that you've got to look at. You want to spend your money wisely. You know, let's put it, we are West Ham. We're not Manchester United. We're not Man City. We're not Chelsea. And we're not what probably Newcastle are going to be in the years to come, where you can just go and spend £50, £60 million on a right back. We're not going to be able to do that. So we've got our transfer kitty, whatever that might be, 100 million, 50 million, whatever it might be. But we have to spend that money more wisely in the future. And I think that's something that David Moyes, given time, and I hope he is given the time, I think he will gradually introduce that over the next two or three seasons. Talking of big money signings, obviously, record signing Sebastian Haller. As, yeah. uh, you know, he's had his moments. Uh, and the club for, for many years has been desperate for a goal scorer. Um, I think the last natural, proper, good goal scorer we had was probably Dean, uh, Dean Ashton. And we spoke, as we spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. And of Haller, he was saying that you know, he needs to run around a little bit more for him to actually make a proper impact for the club. He needs to look at someone like Mikel Antonio, who, when he's on the pitch, just doesn't stop running and grafts and works and actually makes chances for himself. Uh, do you think, with that in mind, the way that Haller plays and his style of play, do you think, in hindsight, he probably wasn't the right the right striker to sign in that moment? Um, well, I, I think obviously it was, a, it was a huge investment for the club. And when you spend 45 million, I think it was, was it 45 yeah. million? You, you, you really want someone who's going to get your 20 goals a season. I think so, for a club like West Ham, because that, as I just said, with the amount of money, that's probably half or two thirds of the transfer budget gone on one player. So you need an instant return. Now, the same thing applies with Haller as what I was saying about Pablo Fulmel. They might go on to be all-time legends at West Ham. We just don't know because you yeah. never know what's going to happen in the future. Um, but a couple of things. You know, I, I agree with Dean's point about you, you've got to you've got to work a bit harder. You know, I think that the lazy days when I used to play and you stand up front and score the goals and get all the adulation, I don't think you can get away with that anymore. I think you need to be more involved in part of the team that I was on about but I also think it's worth pointing out, and I think it's only fair to Sebastian Haller as well, is to say that at times, the service has been awful. And at, at, well, most of the time, he's been playing up front on his own. 
Now, you're thinking as soon as we put Antonio or whoever it might be up front with Haller, all of a sudden you've got two players up front, you've got two options instead of one. And, you know, I've watched, like you guys would have done early in the season, I'm watching him and we're pumping a long ball down the middle for Haller, he flicks the ball on and runs after his own flick off. Mm. Now, that's, that can't be right. So, it's a two-way thing. Yes, of course we need more from Sebastian Haller. He needs to become more aware of what he's got to do for the team and he's got to work harder for the team. Totally agree with that. But we also, if you've got an asset, you've got to play to their strengths as well. Now, if that means you've got a six foot two, six foot three centre ball who wants to head the ball, put some more crosses in, give him a chance. So it's 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 a two-way thing. You've got to work together. He's got to work for the team and the team's got to work for him. Tony, one man who you'll have spoken about in all of your capacities, not just as a, as a West Ham man, but as a general wise voice on football in your, in your role at Sky is, of course, Declan Rice. And the understandably, I think the, the rumours aren't going to go away, basically. Certainly while he's on the contract he's on at the moment. I know he only got it recently, but already he's clearly one of the best players at the club. He was a huge part of our first 11 all season. There's rumours recently about Declan going this summer. I think the no one knows what the state of the transfer market is going to look like at the moment. What are your thoughts on Declan's future going forward? Because he's he's clearly an outstanding player. And I think what what rings true with me is your comments earlier about how you were frustrated when the club didn't kick on in after 85-86. I was frustrated how the club hasn't kicked on since 2015-16 last season at Upton Park. It's happened time and time again at West Ham over the past however many years. It's almost the trademark of the club. And you had Rio Ferdinand, Joe Cole, Frank Lampard, that school of players. And people always go on about oh, what, what a team it could have be, been if we'd built it around those players. You've got a man in Declan now where a team could and potentially sh- or certainly should be built around if possible. Give us some of your thoughts on, on Declan. Well, obviously, we know how good he is at the moment, but, but sort of going forward a little bit more. Well, I think the same applies to where I was back in 86 to Declan now. Um, there's only two ways to keep Declan at our football club. Only two ways. And that is to win a cup or to play in Europe. That's the only two ways that you can keep a young, talented player like Declan at a football club. Do you mean um, long term there or just sort of like for next season uh, even? In the, next, in the next two or three years or at least at least be getting within touching distance, you know, maybe get to a semi-final or get close or finishing eighth or something and just, you know, maybe nearly get to you. you you've got to give the player because the, the problem is, well, you, your career goes so quickly, you, you blink. Billy Bond said to me when I was 18, he said, Tony, he said, enjoy every single minute of it. He said, because it will go like that. And I looked at Bill and Bill was 36 at the time. And I went, Bill, I said, I'm only 18. He went, trust me, Tony. He said, you'll blink and you'll be 36 the same as me. What happened? I blinked and I was 36 the same as Bill. And, it, and life in general, you guys will know as well, you're young, young kids, you know, life goes so quickly. There's so much happening going on around us. And the, the thing with Deck, he, he needs to see that the club is making progress. He doesn't want to be fighting a relegation battle every year. None of us do. So that's the first thing. So you, West Ham need to have a good cup run. We keep saying, have a good cup run. What do we do? Lose 4-0 to Oxford and things like that. You know, we can't be doing that. You cannot be doing that. Um, we need to be in the top 10. I've already spoke about that. And the one other thing that the club can do in this moment in time to protect Declan and to protect the club is to give him a new contract because the new contract he would have signed... 
he, he's, I, listen, I don't know the figures. He, I know he was on a crazy amount, three grand a week or something crazy, and they, they probably gave him 30, 40 grand a week. Which, listen, About 35, uh, I think, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Listen, for me and for you guys and for you know everyone who loves football, you're going, wow, what an unbelievable amount of money to have. But the point is, is if he was at Man United or Man City or Chelsea, wherever he might go to, he'll be on at least 100 grand a week. So what the club can do is to at least double his wages. And people are saying, well, you can't be doing that. He's a 20-year-old. Well, no, he's an England international. And if you give him a four- or five-year contract on that sort of money, you protect the value and the asset of the player. So he'll mm-hmm. be worth 70, 80 million because you've got to get him out of his contract. So I think that's for me. First things first, give Declan a new contract. Get him tied down. And all right, he might, he might sign a five-year deal and leave in his time anyway. But if he does, at least we'll get maximum amount of money for him. And secondly, we need to build a team around Declan Rice. He just touched on it. He's a wonderful, wonderful young player. More importantly, he's a fantastic lad as well. I've had the privilege of being in his company a few times. He's a lovely, lovely lad with a great family around him. And he wants to do things for West Ham. He wants to achieve for West Ham, which is a real good base and a positive to start with. But if you don't give him the tools of the trade and help him to you know, realise his ambition, he, he will get frustrated like what I did and he will leave the football club. And if he does leave, got to make sure you get the most money for it. Tony, just uh, one more before we move on to some to some listener questions. Um, before all this happened in terms of, you know, COVID-19 and the outbreak and football being postponed, there was a, a, a lot of a lot of a lot of movement towards the sort of anti-board movement going on. Um, and that kind of then died off when football stops. But then since then, I think they've, you know, they've done, they've done some really, really good stuff by sort of choosing not to furlough, um, sort of non-paying yeah. staff, uh, doing sort of, um, payment, uh, sort of wages, salary referrals, uh, taking wage cuts, stuff like that. Um, what are your thoughts on sort of, you know, how the board then navigate their way forward, given that there's, you know, there's going to be less chance for us to spend a lot of money in the transfer window because, you know, we've lost out on sort of three or four, Months of you know, big revenue at the football club. We're not going to be the only club in the same, in the, you know, in that boat. How, how does the club then move forward, given the, the you know, the stick they were getting before, um, and then sort of, you know, how they've dealt very well with the current situation. I think there's no doubt that in the eyes of some fans, not all fans, but in some fans, I, I think no matter what the ball do, they won't ever really be accepted. Um, I think that's just a fact, I think, because of what's happened over the last 10 years or so. Um, the one thing I would like to see going forward, I mean, I always, I always say, and I'll say to you guys again, that they deserve credit for taking over the club back in 2010 when there was no other bidders. The club would have gone to the wall administration and free fall through the division. That could well have happened. So they took over and, and you know, they did put their money where their mouth is. And I would always stick up for them from that point of view. I think having said that, though, there is no doubt over the last 10 years, you know, they've done many good things, but they've also done things that haven't gone down well with the fans and they haven't been the right thing. So I, I, I mentioned about the the team on the pitch, about being a great set of individuals, but you've got to play as a team. And I think that not only holds true on a football field, it holds true throughout a football club. Now, you you can't run a football club if you've got a training ground. I know it's different at the moment, but in normal circumstances, if you've got a training ground and you don't have a chef serving the food or you don't have a cleaner cleaning the toilets or you don't have a physio or a doctor if someone gets injured, 
all the infrastructure that needs to go around the footballers, then everything collapses. And I think the same holds for the board as well. I think the board need to reach out to the fans. I don't know whether they would do this, but they need to reach out to the fans. And, and it needs to be a more team collective effort. How we go about doing that, I, I don't know. That's what I would like to see. Because I think we're all in it together. And, you know, listen, David Gold is, without doubt, he's a West Ham fan. I'm, and I know, you know, he wants what's best for the football club. So, you know, we need to, we need to get everyone together, particularly after what's happened, you know, with, with all what's going on now. Perhaps things might be a little bit different. I don't know. But we need to work as a team. We need a clear strategy and a clear plan for trying to take West Ham onto the next level. And that's not in place at the moment. So I think that's got to happen in terms of whether the ball would sell up or not. I think David Sullivan's on record as saying is if the, the king of Saudi Arabia comes on the phone, then he would sell up. But they've already got a Newcastle, so I don't think that one's going to happen. <laughs> um, but it's, it's going to be a tough world out there when all this ends. So you know, there's not going to be a queue of people lining up to buy West Ham United Football Club, which means that whoever is at the football club, whether you're a board member or a player, We've all got to work together, and the fans, of course. We've all got to try and work together to get what's best for the team. Yeah, absolutely, Tony. A couple of conversations I've had with some people very close to the to the club, and and sort of you know general people who, who know what they're talking about in terms of football financing. I think West Ham, on the face of it, would to a lot of people seem to be a really attractive prospect. But I think it's all of the politics that come with the stadium, the complicated ownerships. You go to a club like Newcastle, who are similar size to us, you know, fan base and passionate city club unfortunately they come with a stadium they already own nothing no, nothing involving the government or any legacies I have to worry about or ownership deals so I think um, you're certainly right I think uh, it's, it's going to be an intriguing one over the next couple of years but I think it, it would be good if the, the board used this sort of pause and downturn as a as a chance to use it as a fresh slate when we all come back and perhaps fresh yeah, ideas from I all concerned You've touched on a key point there. I think the stadium is a key point to that because, mm. you know, in an ideal world, I and I think most of the fans would like to see the club own the stadium. Now, if you own the stadium, you can do what you want. You can put whatever picture up on the wall you want. You can name the stands and the lounge or whatever you want. But we can't do that at the moment because we don't own our stadium. Now, whether that is feasible, whether it's in the budget of the club, we know money's going to be tight once we come out of this virus scenario. But I think going forward, at some stage over the next five years, I would like to see the club own the stadium. And that will give us a more solid base. If you then own the stadium, then you're more likely to attract investors because then we're buying an asset as opposed to be buying a rent from the government. Exactly. I'm, I'm led to believe the, uh, the, the particular clause that's put... Um, people or put the club off of buying the stadium expires uh, alongside David Moyes' contract, which was 18 months from when he took over. I think there's a <clears throat> excuse me, there's a huge percentage that the the club would have to pay to the LLDC or whichever interested yeah. party it would be at the moment. There's always, that, well, there's always deals to be done. You know how life works. There's always a deal to be done. If you want to sort it out, it can be sorted out. And I, I, I just hope that there's some communication going on and. Hopefully one day, you know, we can we can own the stadium and, and that will be better. Because listen, we're not we're not going anywhere. We're not going back to Upton Park. We can't. It's not there anymore. There isn't anywhere where else you can go and play football at this moment in time. So we might as well make the most of, of the asset. You know, I actually like the London Stadium. When I go there, I think, wow, this is an incredible stadium. 
but it needs to be our stadium and it needs to be a football stadium all year round. It can't be athletics, it can't be rugby, it can't be baseball. It needs to be a football stadium. And I think if we get into that position, that will be better from the fans' point of view in terms of where you sit and how close you can be to the pitch. So many, so many good things could come out of that. So hopefully that's something that's going to be looked at in the next five years. Absolutely right. Tony, to uh, move this on quickly, we've kept you for, for plenty of time already. Really appreciate you having, on, having you on. And we've had some questions come in from our listeners. Me and James obviously kept the show going during lockdown to keep people entertained. Absolutely thrilled to have you on and, uh, and come and help us do that. A um, few questions from the listeners. Uh, the first one, this is from Mark in Southwood and Ferris in Essex, and you touched on it earlier on. Why didn't West Ham kick on? Why was it that they didn't kick on in that 86-87 season? Well, I think the manager, John Noel, was uh, probably, I suppose it's always been the same at most clubs. You know, John wanted more money. He wanted to sign players to obviously take the team on to the next level. But in the end, after the 86 season, we never signed. I don't, unless my memory is playing me up, we didn't sign anyone for the pre-season. We all pretty much had the same squad of players. And I think you always need to freshen it up. But it's also important to, to when you make the signings to replace people, you, you, when you sell Frank McAvenny, you need someone to come in who's good or if not better than Frank McAvenny. And the same with me as well. And that's what the club didn't do. I think the players that came in eventually weren't as good as the players who left and ultimately the club got relegated three years later so um, great frustration because as I said earlier we had a great team Tony we've got another one here from um, Adam Netherborough on Twitter uh, he's just said Red Bull ownership question mark see there's been a lot of rumours about Red Bull and their sort of taking over the club um, only rumours at the moment um, obviously that then would potentially mean um, doing what they would do with, with other football clubs they've done with sort of RB Leipzig and, um, and the rest of them by changing the identity a little bit. How would you feel about that if that happened? Theoretically, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of talk, hasn't there, over the last couple of years. They've been, they seem to have been consistently linked with the club. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm not against um, new ownership. I, I, I think you have to, sometimes you have to freshen things up. And as I've already said, maybe some baby gold would talk to the right people. So and if that's in the best interest of the club, Yes, of course, I, I would support that. But I don't want to be RB West Ham fans very much. That's not what I want. I think our name is special. We must always be West Ham United Football Club. And I think anything that would suggest otherwise is not the right one for me. But as I always said, as I said before, they, they, you can always sort peels out and do stuff, name the stadium, etc. There are ways around it. But West Ham United should always be West Ham United. Uh, Tony, a couple more quick-fire ones before we wrap up. The first one uh, had come in. This is another one over the email from Tom. Uh, favourite game or favourite goal? Uh, I'd be hard-pressed, probably. Uh, well, talking to the 86 season, I think the 4-0 win at Sanford Bridge was special. Like You guys must have seen the clips on YouTube. We was we absolutely destroyed Chelsea that day. And that, was a, that was the best team performance I was involved in. But I, I think in, in terms of my favourite game and my favourite goal, it's got to be my debut against Spurs and to... To score as a 17-year-old and, as I said, you know, about 18 months after I'd left school and all of a sudden I'm playing with Phil Barks and Albie Martin and Ray Stewart. Um, you know, it was a wonderful day for me and it was just really, really special to score my day. And another one that's coming from Mickey also on the email. Your strangest player or strangest story who you ever um, sort of played with in the squad? Oh, yeah. Well, probably Marco Buga springs to mind. I don't know whether you remember that. <laughs> the, the mid-90s and he was a 
was, he was actually all right as a fella. He was okay. He played a couple of games and then he got sent off at Old Trafford. He nearly cut Gary Neville in half. He got banned for three games and he sort of went back to Holland and next thing, you know, the papers were saying he was living in a caravan and he didn't come back. And it's, <laughs> so it, it, you'd probably be hard-pressed to, uh, to beat Margot Boogers, I think. Excellent. Tony Cotty, thanks very much for joining us on We Are West Ham today. One thing we, we do have to thank, first of all, Bianca Westwood, the Refer a Friend scheme that we've got going on the We Are West Ham podcast has yeah. uh, paid dividends once again. So thanks, Bianca, for referring a friend. We will ask if it's all right for you to do the same thing to keep the Refer a Friend scheme going at West Ham. We don't like, well, we say this every week, that we don't like to lead people about who they ask. But we've had uh, had Martin Allen on the show when this was still a live radio show before lockdown. We've had Frank McAvenny come on and talk before. Tony Gow, I don't think we've had Tony Gow yet. So we'd be yeah. more absolutely delighted if you, uh, you'd be able to pass on to any of those three. Which one do you think is most likely? I think I probably could get Gail if you. I don't want to promise because I don't want to let the fans down, but I will have a word with my mate Gail and see if he'll do it for you. Absolutely brilliant. Wonderful. So once again, uh, I think, Tony, it's safe to say you've been James's favourite guest we've ever had on the podcast because of how many times you've called him young. You say that to all the guests. Don't give me all that money. <laughs> well, all, all, all of the guests don't tell James he looks young as much as you have, to be honest. I think four <laughs> times you've called him a youngster. You've made me blush a few I'm times. I'm saying what I can see. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's been absolute, an absolute true honour to have you on. I know you, you must hear it a lot, but it really has been a pleasure. We've, we've taken up a lot of your time. You've stayed with us um, for ages, which we really, really appreciate. It's brilliant to have you on. Thanks very much, from, certainly from me and James and, and from the fans. And you've been listening to Tony Cotty, one of West Ham's all-time great strikers on the We Are West Ham podcast. Tony Cotty, thanks very much. Cheers, boys. Come on, you irons. So there you have it, Tony Cotty, one of West Ham's all-time great strikers. We had Dean Ashton on last week, excellent centre-forward for West Ham, one of the greatest of the modern era, and Tony Cotty there, one of the greatest of all time, surely one who all of the listeners to the We Are West Ham podcast will remember. James, fantastic to have Tony on. Once again, we have to say thanks to Bianca Westwood, who, as part of the We Are West Ham Refer a Friend scheme, passed on to to Tony, who who was able to come on and speak to us for... Oh, ages, to be honest. There's no other way to put it. An excellent yeah. chat with, with Tony for a nice long period of time. Another outstanding guest for us on We Are West Ham. And a real pleasure and an honour to have a man who scored so many goals for West Ham. And, and what a life that man must have led, eh? What we'd all give for, for even a snippet of, uh, of what he's managed to experience. But um, yeah, interested to, to hear some of his thoughts there and some of his anecdotes he's a he's a great bloke and um what did you make of his his comments around the uh around the board and the, the current state of the team i think i think it was interesting you know he's always made no uh, made no secret the fact that you know the board do deserve credit you know in, in some in some aspects you know a lot of people still do point to the fact you know when they did buy the club the club was on its knees and it desperately needed saving uh, they happen to be the ones that Put their money, uh, put their money to into the club, and saved us from, you know, potentially, as Tony said, going to administration, technically falling down the leagues. So, you know, it was interesting to hear hear that, you know, although they do deserve credit for that, you know, they haven't been perfect, and everyone knows they haven't been perfect. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I know he's, he's, he still works for the club here and there, and um, does some stuff for Sky Sports. So, um, yeah, it's. I think that what he said was absolutely right. I think 
at the same time, it's, it will be interesting to see what how, how the club reacts once this COVID-19 thing's over and we're, fo- football's back, how the club sort of, uh, how the board sort of diverts the club forward, um, given the, the financial constraints. Um, and we're always told that they're financial constraints anyway. Um, so then it, it'd be interesting to see see what happens moving forward. But um, I think he's right that, you know, there are elements to the board that, you know, do deserve a bit of praise. I think I mentioned it as well, with the way they furloughed stuff and uh, for not furloughed stuff. Um, but again, they deserve criticism for some of the things they've done pretty badly. So, so yeah, no, I make him right. I think, yeah, I think one of the things I admire about Tony, and I'm not just saying this obviously because we've just had him on, but I've always thought that despite, like you said, he is, he's still a you know a club ambassador and he still does get work out of the club and he's down there a few match days. He obviously does his work for Sky as well. But I think despite all that, it would be easy for lots of people, and we've seen it in recent times, certainly this season, people who are on the payroll who just sort of churn out the stuff that the club probably want them to. But Tony never does that. He always manages to maintain his integrity. And I think he speaks fairly and calmly on a situation that has antagonised and understandably so many people this season. He, he manages to to maintain that integrity. And it is, you know, it's easy to, it was interesting to hear from him about his time when he left the club for, for Everton and then Selangor, the Malaysian move. Despite all that, it's easy to bash him and say, oh, you know, you can't love the club that much. But it's not always as straightforward as that, is it? There is professional and personal standards that come into it. And no matter how much you love the club, there's some things you just can't stand for. But I think the fact he manages to maintain his integrity in all of the work he does, and he always speaks passionately. And I think the more and more I hear from him on the matter, it it's becomes clearer and clearer, if it was in any doubt to anyone, how much he does care about the club but I was uh, obviously his, his own health scares as well it's something that, that he, he's clearly changed his perspective on his life a little bit isn't it and I think certainly at a time like this that's happening to lots of us whether we've had direct impacts or not Bianca unfortunately revealing she lost her nan to coronavirus on the podcast last week uh, Tony's luckily Tony Carr obviously had incidents in his family but Tony Cotty there seemingly sort of escaping quite unscathed which is uh which is good but intri- interesting to hear about his perspective that that brain hemorrhage gave him yeah absolutely i mean i'm i'm i've always been one for uh for mindset and and stuff like that you know i you know i, I read up a lot about it and stuff like that. that's why i asked him sort of whether it did change his perspective on things because I'm, I'm sure something that serious um and um i don't know whether it got to the point where it was life-threatening for him I, i'm not but he didn't really delve into that that bit uh, you know, I think it was reading reading some stuff at the time. I think he said, you know, if it had gone on any longer, there's every chance you could have dropped dead. It's yeah. just the brain hemorrhage, the bleed on the brain. It's a huge thing, isn't it? Well, I mean, in that case, then something life threatening like that, you know, I, I was interested just to find out whether that did change his perspective on life and sort of the way that he was he was doing things. You know, he said he was very busy, um, doing lots of work and um, sort of burning the candle at both ends, as it were. And you know, it it, it, it does make you think that, you know. If it can happen to, to you know, one of the best goal scorers this country's ever seen, uh, that it can happen to anyone. Um, so you know, it, it it was quite interesting to hear sort of how he's sort of um, how he looks, how he kind of perceives life moving forward and and stuff like that. And it's just great that he's he's made a recovery and he's sort of you know back to his best and back working and and talking to us talking to us on the podcast. 
Absolutely. I've had another text midway through another family link of mine. It's my sister is in the same year as his niece who happens to be going out with a guy who also went to my school. So the, the family links keep on coming, but um, I'm, I'm pretty certain, although we do have similar hair at the moment, me and Tony, that we're still not related, but I'd be pretty happy to find out he was a long lost uncle after all this time. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I'm still waiting to see on that one. But one, you know, you spoke there about I think that's what really warms me to him even more on his comments about Declan Rice. He just speaks sense, doesn't he? And that's, that's the main thing for me. I think now it's hugely important that the club give Declan Rice a proper contract, a bumper contract. And he, he, Tony, again, he hit the nail right on the head. He said, it's a lot of money to me and you. And it is, but we're not one of the best young footballers in the country, are we? And for, for Declan, he's one of the best players in our team probably one of the best holding midfielders in the entire league. It doesn't, you've got to forget about how old he is, haven't you? Because Man City, Man United, Chelsea, Arsenal, Liverpool, whoever might want to pick him up, they're not going to worry about how old he is. I think the first thing the club has got to do, I know there's concerns about what wages players should and shouldn't be paid at the moment. And okay, if it needs to be scaled down slightly because of the financial impact of coronavirus that doesn't matter like Tony said at least double his wages I think he's on about 35 grand a week at the moment Declan now which again for him would have been a huge lump or a huge leap from what he was on before but you've got to do it again you've got to say okay well he's one of our best players he's one of the best players in the league exactly what Tony said it just ticks all the boxes no matter what might happen in a season or two the first thing you've got to do as a conscientious football club now is give him a contract to make him feel more valuable and also protect his sell-on value if you give him a four or five deal now. Surely that's the only thing the club can do short term. Yeah, and I don't agree with anyone that says that, no, he's 20 years old. You know, it's a lot of money for for, for a 20-year-old. There are so many other 20-year-olds across Europe that are earning a lot more than 35 grand a week. Um, But if if he's our best asset, if he's the best player we've got in that squad and we want to protect him, keep him in in the team... Um, then you give him whatever whatever is the going rate is for a twenty year old international footballer. They're happy giving that sort of money to someone like Jack Wilshere, um, who has barely played ten games for us. Um, so why why wouldn't they consider giving it to our best young young player, um, who the likes of Man United and Chelsea and, and whoever else want want to buy Man United? Um, so you know, I think it. it a lot of people say, oh, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't leave. We shouldn't let him leave, blah, blah. But as Tony said about the time that he left, um, that he left West Ham the first time when he went to Everton, you know, even if you do love West Ham, it's easy to say as a fan that's never been in that situation, I'd never leave. I'd play for whatever. It, but you just wouldn't because, you know, whether you're a West Ham fan or not, Declan Rice isn't a West Ham fan. We know that. Um, so why wouldn't he go, actually, no, guys, I want to, okay, I love the football club, but... I want to go and go and win trophies with a bigger club. Whether that's that's about money or not, it's about trophies. Tony said it when he left forever and he wanted to win trophies. He didn't want to leave West Ham, but he wanted to win trophies. Um, And Declan Rice would probably be the same. Um, That's why Tony said, you know, we've got to be competing for trophies, competing for Europe, competing at the right end of the Premier League table for us to be anywhere near a position to keep him. And at the moment, we're not. So, yeah. I mean, I said last week that you know, he, he should be the last player on that list of, of players that we should be looking to sell to make any money this summer. Um, but, you know, Tony, uh, you know, I think we'll probably have him for one or two more years. But Tony's right. If we're not competing then, then he's off. 
No, I mean the first thing I say, I'll still say that the West Ham can only control so much at the moment, can't they? Right, they can't click their fingers and and win us an FA Cup, or they can't click their fingers and make us qualify for Europe. That stuff probably won't happen overnight. The thing you can do is go, all right, Declan, look, we we might not be able to offer you the trophies right now, but what we can do is offer you a hundred thousand pound a week. And when Philippe Anderson's on 140, I don't want to keep using that as the benchmark, but when Philippe Anderson and Sebastian Haller are on money in that sort of region, 140-odd thousand pound a week, you can trim some deadwood. Again, it's another season, another transfer window coming up. I remember having the same conversations and using that deadwood phrase on the podcast before last summer, before the transfer window, and saying, oh, it's a clear-out season. You know, We need to have a big overhaul, all those classic, transfer spiel words that you hear come out of the uh, the media and mouths like me and you and again we need another one of those there's another load of deadwood at the club that we need to get rid of again and you're right it's certainly room to make some money for for wages for Declan in my opinion one final thing on Tony I think like I say the he really obviously obviously cares about the club and he mentioned his his relationship with Frank McAvenny there and how they had a great relationship on the pitch and that he might have have lived a slightly different life I think looking back he will always be remembered as an icon and I think the work he does now and the integrity and the way he holds himself and conducts himself means that his his status as a West Ham legend carries on and it it continues into you know his his post-career he said he's still got to earn money and and bring it into the household. And I think he does that without, without selling himself out. So I think that's uh, wonderful to see. Brilliant to have him as a guest on, uh, on the We Are West Ham podcast. Once again, we have to say thank you to Bianca Westwood for referring Tony on the Refer a Friend scheme. Hopefully, Tony can pass on our details and get Tony Gow on next week. Another great conversation that will be to have with Tony. Still waiting on Jimmy Walker, of course, from, from Dean Ashton's referral, but I think we'll, uh, I think it's time we started handing him a little bit more on Twitter again. James, if Bianca's pulling up, get or getting the goods, or providing the goods, coming up with the goods, shall I say, with Tony Cotty, then uh, I think it's, it's time Jimmy Walker, we uh, gave him a little knock again. But um, any final thoughts on, on Tony today? And just a pleasure to have him on. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I mean, he was he was my hero growing up. He was the first West Ham player that I idolised uh, in the in the sort of the early to mid nineties when I first started really sort of getting into football. My dad just started taking me, um, so it was a real a real pleasure to be able to speak to him for the best part of an hour, just over an hour, and um, and just hearing his thoughts on on West Ham, sort of in a sort of in a, an intimate setting like like this podcast. And um, yeah, I think it's just fantastic. And you know, I brought up. In that you know that he's he's not respected enough as he should be as a goal scorer in this country. Uh, a lot of people just you know they don't acknowledge the fact that you know he's the fifth highest goal scorer in in top division history in this country. But no one thinks like that because everyone thinks that the Premier League's the be all and end all. Um, so yeah, a little bit of injustice there, but um, it's just been great speaking to him. And yeah, I hope everyone enjoys listening to it. Absolutely. Well, once again, absolutely. Pleasure to have Tony Cotty on as a guest on the We Are West Ham podcast this week. Hopefully, sooner rather than later, either James or I or any of you who are listening at home can bump into Tony in Hospo and uh, obviously more likely to be James than any of the rest <laughs> of us, I'm sure. But um, yeah, so thanks very much to Tony. Thanks to you all of you lot for listening. As always, you've, you've been getting in touch on, on Twitter and on our new email address, wearewesthampod at gmail.com. Keep your questions coming. We've had a few people just letting us know how they're getting on. 
uh, which again we'd love to hear we've been replying to a few of you as well um, love to hear all that thanks very much feedback if you can on itunes spotify wherever you listen to your podcast leave us a, a rating or a review and if this is your first time listening or you've only listened a couple of times do make sure to subscribe to the podcast that makes sure that any of our content that we release each week this is going out as a bonus content for our weekly episode is coming up on wednesday morning as usual so make sure you hit subscribe so that downloads to your phone or wherever you listen to your pods every week absolute pleasure to have tony cotty on as always keep in touch emails twitter facebook we've even got a tiktok now thanks to ollie our new social media guru but thank you very much for listening stay in touch stay safe and remember we are all west ham Thanks for tuning in to this bonus episode, feature-length interview with the Hammers' legendary striker, Tony Cotty. But I just wanted to let you know, this week's podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Your Eleven, and you could win yourself a totally free, bespoke A3 print of your all-time favourite West Ham Eleven by entering our competition. The guys over at Your Eleven have released their opening series of prints, and we are West Ham are looking forward to receiving our Colt Eleven piece including players like Ludo McClosco, Paolo Di Canio, Mark Noble, and of course, my all-time favourite, Super Thomas Repka. But you can win a print of your own, designed by you to include all your favourite Hammers players and the classic kits in which they are most well-known. To enter, simply head over to weare__westham on Twitter, follow our account and the guys at Your11, retweet the We Are West Ham competition tweet, and tag one of your football-loving friends in the comments. The winner will be decided on Sunday and we'll DM the winner with details so you can get picking your players. Other Team 11s are also available to order. Classic options of legendary Premier League sides as well as bespoke options to create your very own dream team. Head on over to at your underscore 11 on Twitter or Instagram to see what's on offer. Good luck.